You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Mama's Talking Loud. I'm Kara Cooper. And I'm Jessica Rush. Today's guest is the first ever Asian costume designer to win a Tony Award. Her work has been seen not only on Broadway, but around the country in basically every regional theater of note. She is a trustee on the advisory committee of the American Theater Wing, super fancy, and the recipient of the Ruth Morley Design Award from the League of Professional Theater Women. Knowing that art reflects society, she is keenly aware of her responsibility as a woman of color and accomplishment to move the conversation forward and demand change. Here's our conversation with Linda Cho. Well, good morning, Linda. Good morning. <laughs> I feel like we should say welcome back to our listeners. We tried this once already with some major technical difficulties, but Linda was so nice to reschedule with us, and we're back. Thank you so much. Well, considering the technical difficulties were probably <laughs> entirely my fault, as has been my experience throughout Zoom throughout this past year. Oh, my They're gosh. I mean, this apologies. is like, no, please. It's like pandemic living. We've had to adapt in so many ways, and inevitably something will happen. But we're so glad that you're here this morning to join us again. Thank you. Yes. My great pleasure. So we'll jump off again. Tell us about your kids. That is the first thing that we always have our guests talk about. Sure. Uh, my favorite topic. So I have two boys. They're nine and 10, and um, their names are Finn and Foster. And they are amazing. They've got lots of energy. Uh, they are best friends, worst enemies. I've been really, I've, we've, my husband and I have said it over and over again, we're so blessed that we have two that are sort of similar in age and same sex because they have a friend. Um, so that, that's been amazing. Uh, yeah, they're in public school. They're doing homeschool or, or rather um, remote learning from here. So they're just outside this little sliding door at school, hopefully. Actually, my little one managed to skip two days of school. We got an email from the teacher saying, what's going on? Are you guys okay? I was like, oh my God, he's been sitting at his desk for two days. I don't know where he was. Oh my god. <laughs> Wait, no, I feel like we have to I mean, this you can't be the first parent this has happened to in this time, but like oh, yeah. was he at the computer and he was and, at the computer all day. Like he was there from like 8:30 to 2:30 doing something. <laughs> Minecraft or something like that. Oh my oh. gosh, that's so hilarious. Yeah, I, don't I don't even know. So we we keep a shorter leash on on him now. <laughs> <laughs> shoulder. Oh, but he's created like this this barrier around his desk so that we can't p- peek our head around. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, and also out. if he's he's there next to his brother, right? So like they're tr- he wants to have his space, and I'm sure for yeah. kids, you know, we've we're homeschooling Elliot, and Kara's kids are able to go to school, and it's like. But those kids who are at home with a sibling trying to do remote learning, you probably want to have your own space. I mean, you yeah. know, trying to save their own sanity, whether they realize it or not, you know. 
I have to say, Linda shared this wonderful video with us of what um, <laughs> virtual school was like in the beginning of this process. And all I could think, I have one boy, also a Finn. I have a girl as well, but he's four. And But just the energy of those two boys, nine and 10, running around your apartment. <laughs> like I think about that, the people that have been stuck inside with – and I don't like to genderize or anything like that. But the, the amount of energy that my boy has compared to the amount of energy that my girl has is significantly different and the way they bounce around this house. So just watching that and envisioning what was going on in your home during that time. Oh, my word. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, But it's amazing. But I have aged in dog years this past year. So like I I aged like an extra seven years. Haven't we all? Yes. Yes. I feel it too. But I have. Right. I look at photos from, I look at photos just from last February and I think, oh my God. Well, first off, I was like 12 pounds lighter, but also, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) I didn't have gray hairs yet. I didn't, my skin, I think I didn't have quite as many wrinkles. This has definitely aged us. It's, it's, it's wild. But the fat has filled in some of the wrinkles. wrinkles. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good job. I was, I was saying to Jess before you got here in the beginning of the pandemic, I was waking up and my eyes were really puffy and it wasn't like, I wasn't crying every night, but I was like, why are my eyes puffy? And I've recently gotten a mouth guard for my teeth. So yeah, I'm not grinding. It's because, it's because I was grinding my teeth at night. My face isn't, my eyes and face aren't puffy anymore because I was, but the stress of the pandemic, I was yeah. grinding my teeth and it was, it was, I mean, Jess saw me. She's like, yeah, what's going on with your face? Okay. Not so, to freak you out, but my dentist, I said, so what would happen if I don't wear the mouth guard? And she like squished her hands on her cheeks downwards. And she said, well, you kind of become an apple doll and your face just like compresses. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to wear it. I'm never missing <laughs> a night now, Linda. Ever, ever. I never do. I never do. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, aging and pandemic madness aside, you are yes. our first costume designer we've ever had on the show. We've had a Ooh. lot of act- actors, directors, choreographers, casting directors, but we've never had someone on this sort of creative side. So, can you go through your process for our listeners to really understand, you know, from getting the job to first performance, what that process of creating costumes for a show is? Sure. So I get the job initially from a director. He chooses his creative team, chooses a set, lighting, um, sound, uh, costume designer. And so as soon as I get a a job, I read the script and um, I try to keep an open mind. You know, different directors like to work in different ways. Um, Some uh, want you to come in with a bunch of ideas. Some want to tell you uh, what what they have in mind. Um, But I, I prefer to come in sort of pretty open. Um, and, uh, I hear in that first meeting that usually lasts, you know, a couple of hours, uh, what their, their, their direction for the piece will be. I think of a director as kind of a captain of a ship and they're going to moor us in a certain direction. So in that conversation, we might talk about like what period, if it's a Shakespeare, for instance, what period we're going to, we're going to do it. in. if there's a certain level of stylization, if they have dream casting of somebody that they're thinking of, um, uh, Sometimes the set designer has spoken first in, in, in separately, so they might share some images of what the set designer has been thinking about and what the world of the play is. And so with that information, I go home and I start doing research and I do an initial round of sketches. And again, I try to keep it somewhat, somewhat um, uh, 
leave enough air in the design that there's still room for conversation. So I, I do some black and white sketches. I meet again with their director about a week and a half or two weeks later and share with them those ideas. And then they give me their, their comments based on, on, on the sketches. I go back, I, I color those sketches and then get final approval. And then I start the production phase. So that usually takes about three weeks. The next phase takes about another, for regional theater, let's say, another three weeks to four weeks um, where we start making the clothes. And if it's a period show where we're building a lot of the clothes, we have a, a first fitting and it's a muslin fitting. So we use cheap fabric that's sort of like off, off white colored and, and stiff. And the clothing is mocked up in that fabric. And it's... um. It's great because it's a very sculptural step. Anything can happen at that point. We can draw on it. We, we cut away at it with scissors and, and uh, it, the pressure's off because the fabrics are, are sometimes like $150, $200 a yard. So the real fabrics we eventually use and, and muslin is like a dollar a yard. So, <laughs> so uh, we figure out, we figure out all the problems in the silhouette and all the sculptural bits on that. And then in the second fitting, like maybe a week and a half later, we do a fabric fitting. So all of those, those pattern pieces now have been cut out into um into the costume and we do a fitting in, in real in the real um fabric and the the people that are involved in in the the actual making of the clothes we have dressmakers we have tailors um we have wig makers makeup designers they're crafts people they're painter dyers they're distressers they're shoemakers um there's uh uh, an infinite number of artisans that are working on on the clothes and then we go to dress rehearsal and on dress rehearsal my job when I'm sitting there in the audience um, is the first time we go from cue to cue that's the time for the lighting designer to to set up you know where the light positions are and you know tell the actors you should be standing here or there and you should enter from this door and and you know don't stand there you're in front of that person blah 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 but my job during that time is to look at the big stage picture. Um, oh my God, are there two purple shirts on standing beside each other? Like is, is, uh, is the hem wonky? Uh, do we need to straighten that hem out? Um, is this just the wrong idea for this costume? Do we need to start again? Um, or if we're, you're in a musical in your final dress rehearsal, somebody might say, we need a whole new number. And so in two or three days, you need to put a whole scene on or change a dress. Um, so that's dress rehearsal. And, uh, then we go into previews and previews is when, um, the press, have to stay away from the theater until opening night. However, in this day uh, day and age of social media, as soon as you hit the stage, you're in the court of public opinion. So, you know, your things have to be fairly polished by then, um, unfortunately. Uh, no pressure or anything. Days, yeah, exactly. In the good old days, you had some time, you had this incubation period where you could make some changes and and feel safe in that. So, so I think some of that has changed because of the technology. But... Um, so theoretically, you can make changes uh, in safety until opening, and then my job is done. And word to the, uh, the people who work backstage with the actors, um, the wardrobe crew, they they take over from there and make sure that the clothes are maintained and that things look the way they should. That's amazing. That's I, I mean, I have to just say, I burst into tears, to be honest, when you said Q to Q. <laughs> it's so silly. <laughs> but I there are phrases that are so specific to what we do right? And that is one of them. And I'm still emotional. Maybe it's because it's early on the West Coast, but 
it's also been a year since we have been in our theaters and in these spaces. And, you know, Kara and I, fittings, getting to see what your costumes look like, that's like the best part. You know, like you love that. It, it informs so much of what you're already doing. And and it it helps you, like you've said, you are a storyteller as a costume designer. You're not a fashion designer, you're a storyteller. But literally just sitting here thinking of like all those fittings we've had with muslin and the steps, we've both gone through those steps. But the minute when you said, and then we're in the theater and it's cue to cue, and that just that is a phrase you don't use probably in anything else. I can't think of any other job that you use that phrase in. And so to hear those words after a year of not hearing many that pertain specifically to what we do, I just burst into tears in a good way. I mean, I miss it. I love it so much. The thing that struck me is when we're talking about one facet of what we do and you are talking about all the different uh, people that, that come together to create costumes, all the different people that are utilized all of those people have not had that work during this time. It's yeah. really, I don't think people really understand the scope of our industry being shut down. You know, obviously they understand, okay, the actors aren't on stage and the people selling the tickets in the box office, but they don't understand how far reaching our industry's economy is. Um, so when you went through that list, I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, I've thought about it before clearly, but just hearing it again, um, it's mind blowing when you really think about it. Well, I'm so glad that you sort of singled that out. There's a, uh, the, the shops that I work with in New York city have come together and created the costume coalition because they are completely screwed. Um, they can't pay their rent because, uh, you know, their work is dried up. Um, so they're trying to reach out to politicians and to producers and, and they've been told through, uh, various, um, um, experts in, in, in sort of fundraising and awareness that, you know, that what, what they need to, um, to, to do to get some people to at least acknowledge and understand what it is they do within the industry and why it's vital and why if they disappear as a group, it will be difficult, what the repercussions will be throughout the theater. That is absolutely true. Yes. We actually, Sky, who I worked with um, on Tina, but he has been reaching out and asking us, you know, when cost, when the costume coalition um, has specific events and things like that. So you guys stay, stay tuned to our social media, give them a follow. We'll make sure to link it with this episode, because I do think, you know, it, it is, there is a, the specificity of what those costume shops and those tailoring houses do is, it's magical and it's, it is so specific. And these are people that are used to having numerous, you know, like four companies of wicked that they're building or Hamilton or even the smaller things. Like there's usually simultaneous productions running. And so there's an enormous amount of work that's being done and all of that has stopped. It has ceased to exist. And so please do check that out. We would so appreciate the support because that is once they disappear. I mean, that's a whole facet of like New York life and just, you know, that, you can't get back. You know, it's, it's what makes New York great are these specific pockets of artisans who do what they do. I love that you talked about distressors in that list. I was like, I know. there are people that are distressors, like, and tracers, <laughs> obviously, but oh my God, but, like they just, oh, and you know what? I forgot to mention, like if you do a contemporary show, that's a different process. You know, we do do yep. the same two fittings, but you know, the first, um, the first fitting is, looks like a store, you know, we're just filled with racks and racks of clothes. Um, even if it's a very simple look of, you know, for menswear, like a 
a, sh- a button-down shirt with a t-shirt and jeans and socks and running shoes. You're going to have 20 of each kind of item to just try because people, especially with contemporary clothes, have their own um, comfort level and their own ideas about what 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 their clothing says. Like that is a natural expression of who we are. Um, clothing, it's a it, it, broadcast to the world what you think about yourself uh what what kind of socioeconomic status you have you know for that particular event what you think about that event um the effect you want to have on other people so you know all of that is very internal so with the actor i have to sort of sculpt that out in the fitting and the stuff that i have in the room may be completely the wrong thing so um that first fitting there's just a blank ton of clothes in there and it's changing like until opening I don't get rid of the extra clothes because things circle around because not only do the actors want to weigh in then suddenly there's a lot of experts in the theater oh my god (laughs) their opinions about everything it's crazy when I joined when I joined Dear Evan Hansen as a standby the amount of leggings like yoga wear that I tried on you know (laughs) There were, there were literally like dozens of options just to see which leggings, you know, fit the best, which ones made my booty look good. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah no, but that's like all, all real. Yeah. That's my life. That's. <laughs> but also to that end, like I, I've been in fittings with regular clothing, clothing, and also to anybody listening, the, it is such an unbelievable experience to have clothes that are made for your body. It is such a singular experience besides the fact that it adds to the character that you're playing and informs the decisions that you make on stage and creates the life that of the story that you're trying to tell having clothes fit your body be you know that aren't off the rack is the is just an, a singular experience but i've had like shirts that have been bought from i don't know bloomingdales that have been completely taken apart and then re-put together so that they fit me correctly like these are the things that are happening with those off the rack clothing that you you know shop for right. in those so fittings suddenly, you know it was a, it started off as a hundred dollar blouse has become like an a thousand dollar blouse with all the <laughs> alterations and work and time that just goes exactly. into it <laughs> exactly um so you talked about you know you're hired by a director um and i'm wondering because we're talking you know it's international women's month and that's what we're talking about we're talking about women in fields that are predominant dominated by men. Um, do you find your experience is different when you're working with a male director as to when you're working with a female director? Um, I think it's a, a lot of it depends on the individual personalities of the people that I'm working with. But, you know, when I, I did um, Lifespan of a Fact with an all-female design team and director, um, uh, Lee Silverman and uh all of our assistants were women. Um, it, it was an extraordinary thing. I, I think four of us were mothers. One of them just had a newborn and uh, twins. And um, <laughs> and Lee, uh, Lee Silverman gave up her dressing room for breastfeeding. And um, um, it was an extraordinary thing. But, you know, the thing is, I was a little more nervous than usual because this meant a lot to me. So, you know, I just didn't want anything to go wrong. So um, on one hand, you would think, oh, maybe you're more relaxed because you're with with uh, like minded people. You're with 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 women that um, that understand what you're going through and who've gone through similar experiences in the theater. But I, I was a little more on edge because I wanted everything to go go really well. Um and uh, so, 
So the answer is, you know, I, I think it depends on the individuals that was loaded. That circumstance was loaded because of, of its sort of historic aspect. Um, yeah. Now I'm trying to think about if there's other differences. And sometimes, you know, when you're working with a woman, um, you do feel like you have an ability to maybe say things that you may not feel comfortable saying if you were in an all male team. Mm. I think that makes a difference. Sometimes I've been on teams that I've been the only female I've been on teams when I've been the only um, person of color. I've been at a theater where I was the only person of color, not only in the design team, but also in the entire audience during, I remember looking around during a performance, looking around saying, Oh my God, like, everybody oh. here. Wow. Um, and I've been on teams where I've gone to the bar after a show and, you know, looked down the table and like, Oh my God, I'm the only woman. Um, and, uh, I didn't really start clocking even any of that until the last few years. I don't think it even occurred to me. Um, think i've gone off on a tangent no no that's- no this is exactly <laughs> what we want to hear about yeah because we actually have in our notes about we saw you speak at the women on broadway uh panel last year just before the shutdown and something that stuck with us that kara and i have spoken about when we were talking about having you on is how you said and this sort of pertains to that how you've you have spoken about feeling that perhaps you were filling a box at times like you check off like a she's a woman b she's a woman of color and that instead of letting that sort of affect the way you thought about it, you were like, you know what, screw it. Like I'm going to do the best job I can so that people can see that no matter who you have, you know, doing the job that it can be done well. It doesn't, you know, I got this job because I'm good at what I do and not necessarily the boxes that I check. And I think that that comes from what you're saying. And I think that, you know, you said you didn't start clocking it until just a few years ago. It's so innately like, inside of us, I think, to, to just the world that it's systemic, right? It's, it's ingrained in who we are and in, in our culture and in our society that you didn't even think, oh my God, I'm the only girl here until it started to probably become more of a conversation within society. Yeah. I, I, I was just thinking back like 25 years ago, I was, um, I was in the Berkshires doing a show and, um, this is, this is just to show like where my head was in terms of race, at least. Um, I went into a bank, I, I signed the back of the check and the, the teller slipped it back to me and said, um, that I signed it in the wrong place. And I said, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I usually just sign it anywhere. And she said, well, in this country, we sign on the line. <sighs> and all I could think of was, Oh my God, how did she know as Canadian? Like that, like it didn't even occur to me that I was, <laughs> and I left being like, did, did I have my, my, my driver's license out or something? But yeah, so it didn't occur to me till later that, that, that was incredibly racist. Yeah. Um, oh my. Uh, I, I think I'd have a different reaction now. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> for sure. For sure. And, you know, just in terms of just thinking about like, our attitudes and how they've shifted. Um, I had for my first Broadway show, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. I, um, I purposely wanted a Tony award. Tony (laughs) award. Applause. Tony award. It was beautiful. That pink dress that Sybil, that she wears is Bella. Yeah. Sibella. It's so beautiful. I love it. I'm obsessed. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, but 
I, so I had a, an associate with lots of experience. I think she was in her sixties at the time. And, you know, she, um, she noticed that I spoke a lot about my kids, like in every fitting in with all the makers and, you know, it was like a big topic of conversation. And, and she pulled me aside and said, do you know, like, like when I was starting out, nobody talked about kids. Um, if you had kids, you'd be quiet about it. You really didn't want anyone to know because you didn't want to th- anyone to think that it was affecting your work. And she's like, I'm amazed that you are able to talk about it so freely. Um, and, and she had to make choices based, you know, on career and family as well uh, during that time. So we've, we've, we've come some distance, which is great we've made some strides for sure for sure and I think we spoke with Tara Rubin last year on the podcast the casting director and you know she is of a certain age as well and she talked about how she never used to speak about her children and it in and it and she had to get over sort of her own bias within the world like thinking of how oh we can't hire this person because she has children if that was found out but she was saying how you know we have to continue to bring them up we have to speak up because it's only by awareness and by making them part of the conversation that things will actually change and there will come a point where hopefully they're no longer an issue. Because that's something that I think, you know, as actors, even we were hesitant to don't let them even, you know, about even being married sometimes. You know, if you know there's a specific casting director who likes women or men <laughs> who are not married, you know, then you're like, do I wear my ring in the room? Do I not wear my ring in the room? Will oh, it help wow. me if they think, yeah. oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's so funny. You said something, I'm going to keep, we're going to keep bringing up Women of Broadway because obviously you made it an impact on us there. But you said something to the effect, to the effect of um, understanding everybody's given circumstances and how they're, you know, whatever the, the situation that everybody's coming from. And when you're a mother, that is part of your given circumstance. That is part of where you're coming from. And I think moving through the world with this new idea of trying to really invite conversations that everybody's dealing with a little bit of a, dif- a different deck of cards, you know, and when it, when it comes to everything, when it comes to systemic racism, when it comes to privilege, when it comes to whether or not you're a parent, what you're dealing with. I have a daughter with special needs. That's part of my, you know, that's part of the situation that I'm coming from. Um, and you spoke to that very eloquently. Uh, and so I appreciate it. I, I guess I'm just bringing it up to say thank you. Thank you for, for saying so. Um, yeah, I'm glad that there's there's that you have this podcast that we're having these discussions because, um, like my that assistant said, Nancy, um, it was it was like a forbidden forbidden topic. Um, I'm curious, like some a, a colleague of mine, I'm curious to to hear what you have to say about this. Um, is that the shift in this culture has in part been because a lot of the positions of leadership are gay men. And they have started having children, and so that mm-hmm. has changed the culture within the theater. Uh, what, yeah. what, do you, what do you think? Do we have? I, we, we said this yesterday <laughs> to each other. Yeah, we actually were talking about this yesterday with a with a guest after the fact. Um, but uh-huh. we had said, I do think that a lot of it does have to do with that. You know, this is an industry and a and an art form that very heavily was founded, I think, by you know gay men and. Um, and, 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 and women, of course, but like in history, throughout history, it was much more about like, um, you know, you've got the, the Sondheims and you, 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 I mean, it's, it, 
where I'm looking for the words, but I just think that it's true. (laughs) Bottom line, I think it's true. I think that there are so many men, gay men in position of power in this industry just because of our circumstances and it is what it is. And they have started to now have children. And in doing so, they realize what we've been struggling with all along, you know? And also I do think not only them, but also the fact that women have stopped leaving the industry upon having children. I do think that that has to do with it as well. Like we, you know, there was a time where I think you either had to make a choice. Am I going to have children or am I going to stay in this business? Or you have children and then you leave the business. And that's still, that still happens today or people assume it does, you know, they'll say, Oh, I thought she left the business. She had a kid, but, and that's why we are doing this. We are trying to bring awareness to the fact that there are those who are working artists, mothers, because it's never come up for the dads, really. I mean, let's be honest. You know, it's it's not really something. Nobody ever, like, when when you, you run into a colleague who says they have kids, nobody says, oh, who's taking care of them? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's it, it, when Jessica and I were at Jersey Boys, I had my, I was the first actor in the, female actress in the building to have a child. There were plenty of dads. Mm-hmm. There were dads everywhere. I was the first. And that was so telling. I mean, there were very few women in the show to begin with, but still. The but fact still, it that, was year like eight of the show. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, it, early it, on. Right. And so it was really shocking that that was the status quo at that point. You know, and I think this conversation is all about understanding other people's circumstances until you walk in other people's shoes, you really don't understand, right? But we are moving towards this space of moving towards empathy, trying to understand, having all these conversations about social injustice and systemic racism and misogyny. You know, we're moving towards this space of trying to put ourselves in another person's situation and understand it. And as artists, that's our job. (laughs) Like literally that is our job to walk in another person's shoes. Like your job is to embody and figure out how to physically present somebody, as you said, of a different economic status, how they feel about the event they're going to. You are presenting all those things that make it possible for us to act as another person and try to portray their experience, you know? So what better people to be leading the charge of this, you know, reckoning or shift in awareness than the people who do it for a living? Right. When- I mean, collectively as theater artists, like we are, our job is to um, reflect on, on society and to hopefully change our hearts and minds and to influence hearts and minds and, and way of thinking. Um, so it is incumbent on us to have these conversations and to examine ourselves. You know, I've been thinking about this new, this new awareness, uh, of anti-racism and, and anti-sexism. And, um, it's a little like moving to a new country where you have to learn a new vocabulary you have to learn like a new culture and you know it's anti- intimidating at first you know there's a lot of fear am i going to get it wrong i'm going to say the wrong thing um am i doing this right who who can i who can i speak to um are there other people who are can you find other expats you don't know what they're doing as well um and so it's tentative um and it's it's hard work and i'm still trying to navigate it i'm learning new words i'm learning you know different ways of being i, I get it wrong all the time um but but it is the our the hard work of theater 
people of, I guess, all artists, but since we're, we're in this forum, I think it, for us, uh, that will be our job moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. you're talking about moving through and um, opening ourselves up to different ideas and different paths and walks of life and things like that, but also with regard to the systemic racism and the fact that, you know, part of it comes from, this is like twofold question, not so much a question, but a comment. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts, which is that so often people have their teams, right? They have, I I had this conversation with my husband when he was doing pretty woman and like, I adore the director of that show, but he has a team that he works with and they're always usually men. They're like the same people every time. And they're all white men. And we can't really make change if you have, if you're not willing to put a hand down and bring someone up to the level so that we can start to have those ideas on the creative side specifically. You know, I did a show, I I did a show that was telling a black woman's story and the whole creative team were white men. You know what I mean? This is, that was a different, that was a different batch of white men. You know what I mean? Like there's, there are these teams and you were speaking to being sort of the only woman in the room and the only woman of color. And I think that when we're telling these stories, it's important to have people who perhaps have shared life experience in that space to inform what we're doing. Um, and I was looking back, you know, we, we talked about how you are the Tony, you're the only Asian American Tony winner for costume design. Correct. Holla. Um, but when I was looking at the research, only 13 Asian Americans have ever won a Tony. And 10 of those were creative. So three were producer and one, one, one producer has won three of them. So that's, you know, he takes out, (laughs) he takes (laughs) out a few spots, but, um, Lea Salonga for Miss Saigon was the first, um, female actor to win, uh, a Tony award. And that was way back in, that was in 89. So it was much farther past when the Tonys were originated. And I think that we have this idea of being an inclusive community And, um, but at the end of the day, we are still very white. And I think that it was interesting, this Forbes article in 2016, the year of Hamilton, when, uh, we thought, oh, there's a shift happening. They found that the Oscars recognize three times as many Asians and Latinos than the Tonys do, even though the Tonys recognize twice as many black artists. So Asians on stage, they found that has declined over the last decade, whereas Hispanic and black artists have um, increased. So there's only been one Asian playwright to ever win a Tony. That was David Henry Huang uh, for M Butterfly. I'm yes, correct. And um, I'm just wondering that we're, we are having this awakening, but as someone who is Asian American or Asian Canadian, I should say, right? You said that earlier that you're Canadian. I'm Canadian, but I have applied for my uh, citizenship <laughs> and I've been studying all the questions. Apparently they're 16 to 18. You know, when 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 the election came up for Trump, you know, leading up to it, I was like, I got to vote. I got to vote. You know, yeah. I was like doing all of this advocacy and, and um, writing letters and going to to protests. I was like, I, I need I need my voice to count yeah. more better. Um, so anyway, I I will. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I just, I kept calling you Asian American (laughs) and then you said that about Canadian and I was like, I missed that somewhere, but, um, within the community, do you ever feel a certain about, um, a certain sense of responsibility, I guess I would ask as an Asian woman 
as opposed to perhaps black women who, who perhaps are more, who number greater than you do. I just feel like within, I talk to my Asian friends who are actors and they, you know, they always say, oh, I can do Miss Saigon and, um, uh, and Butterfly and, you know, Flower Drum Song and King and I, and they're like, that's, that's about it with regard to how they're cast and how they're looked at. And as a creative, as a person on the creative team, is that a conversation that ever comes up or a thought that comes up? Do you think? And then do you feel as though I have a responsibility to continue to, you know, open the door and try to bring others in or put out good work and quotes, you know, so that people can see that I am capable too as a, as a race that's, you know, cause right now I feel like everyone is, looking at race in a way that we haven't before. And I think that what we're trying to show is that everyone is capable, which you would think would be a no brainer, right? But there are people in this world who think otherwise. So, so many thoughts are swirling around, you know, like first, the first thing I think even before I talk about being Asian is to address the, this BIPOC moment, this, um, Black Lives Matter moment. Um, this discussion, we, we have, our African American colleagues and brothers and sisters to to uh, thank. Um, none of this would have happened if they hadn't suffered in such in lifetime for lifetimes of racism, right. overt horrible racism, and and deaths and pain. And so, like the we we have to center this conversation in context of our, of the, the Americans that uh, are in this country. And so, you know, to acknowledge, we um, owe them a debt of gratitude for, for, uh, for this discussion. Um, now, so like being Asian uh, has, I, I acknowledge has certain privileges. Um, we have some good stereotypes that I, I guess are helpful, you know, being studious and hardworking and, and, um, and whatnot. Um, in New York this past year, violence against the Asian Americans has risen. I think it's a thousand nine hundred percent. Yeah. It's horrifying. Um, in New York. So my, my thoughts about being Asian has again, changed radically. And as, as a mother as well, you know, um, I find myself questioning whenever someone is rude to me, like, is that racially motivated or are they just New Yorkers? You know, like (laughs) what's going on? What is the story behind that? And then, um, you know, elderly, especially, but every age group, every sex of, 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 of Asians are, are being targeted. So it's, it's a worrying time to be in, um, in the context of theater. Um, I, I think that I, have been a safe choice for being chosen to do plays of any people of color. I did a lot of like plays about Jewish people, about black people, um, uh, Asian. Um, so I, I think, um, as a designer, at least that has been, uh, part of, what I have been called upon to do, like when you were talking about actors um, having a specific thing that people think that they're, they, they understand. Um, But I think that luckily um, because I've been trusted with, with other projects, I've moved beyond that and 
do an array of things. Um, actually, I was thinking about Ashley Park as you were talking about because uh, about her because she seems to have broken through some of these stereotypes and molds of, of casting. Um, and she's also delightful. Um, who I worked with recently. Um, uh, so specifically, you want to know? Can you? Can you? Well, I just was. We were. I mean, I think you, you're speaking to it in general, for sure. I just was, we were wondering if you feel, you know, the pressure we've had other women of color on the podcast speak to that once they get in a room, they feel a sense of responsibility to either deliver a great product so that people can't find fault within what they're doing. And also to just sort of make sure that they leave the door open for those to come through. And I think that pertains to being a woman on a creative team, and then also as a woman of color. You know, something that the late Ming Cho Lee, um, the, he was the head of the design department and legendary set designer um, at Yale University. He passed away um, this past year. Um, when I was a student, I asked him the question, you know, shouldn't we do something? What is our responsibility as Asians to, to bring our race you know, to the forefront to, to celebrate who we are. And he's, his response was um, just to do the best job that you can in every job. And that in itself will be, um, will elevate those behind you. So I subscribe to that, but I think some of the conversation has changed in this past year that now, um, you know, recognizing and I can't believe I'm saying this, being like an elder designer, <laughs> being like an older designer who's <laughs> a little more established. I, um, I, I, it, it's incumbent upon me to say something if things are not fair or to participate more loudly in these conversations because the, the younger designers are going to be um, more afraid of speaking up and compromising their position where I, I have a little more confidence about um, being able to be heard or to say something that will not be popular and um, still be able to tread water. Um, right. Well, and hopefully you aren't the only one that feels that way, right? Hopefully the people in power who aren't um, a minority for any reason are going to feel the, not just, not the freedom, they have the freedom to speak, but the responsibility to do so. You know, it's a scary I, place. Like it's a scary place to talk up and say, to speak up and say, well, this just doesn't feel right. This, we can't say this, we can't do this. Where, where, where are the other women? Where are the other people of color? And, um, uh, like I was mentioning before moving to a new country, I don't always, I haven't always been able to do it, but, uh, recently on projects, um, I'm doing, uh, a filmed ber version of a play that Susan Stroman did, and hopefully we'll be able to film that soon. Um, you know, I specifically requested uh, a, a BIPOC woman for my wardrobe supervisor. And as I was looking to fill out my team and my, my, uh, my wardrobe team, my, my hair and makeup, my assistants, you know, I, I said, I, I know this is going to be a deeper dive. It may not be people at your fingertips, but I, this is what I would like to request. And, it was honored, quite frankly, which I was really surprised. And I also said, I want to bring on a student, high school student um, intern who will probably have no skills. Um, but, um, and I would like them to get paid a little bit and to be part of the program. And they said, oh, 
yeah, we fully support that. And in fact, we have our own program like that. I was like, oh, okay. Like, oh. <laughs> Great. Good to know. So, so yeah, like, like the world has changed and shifted or maybe it was better and I didn't realize it or I didn't participate in it as um, I would have in the past. But that's, um, that's amazing. More. That's great. People. And it's just not acceptable anymore to, to say horrible things. Like right. the, 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 the era of the L'Enfant Terrible that could stomp around and, and scream at people racially mo- motivated or, se- or sexist or not. You just can't do that anymore. I don't think you can be a horrible human being. Not after four years of Trump. Like we're done with that. Like exactly. nobody has tolerance for that anymore. Agreed. Um, so, Agreed. So it, it's, it's, it is safer, I guess, to speak up now. And it's super encouraging. You are not the first person we've heard who is um, on the scene of things that are in the works and seeing the changes that are being made. You know, Jess and I aren't in production for anything right now. We're we're very much in a, a victim of the shutdown right now. But but the things that are in motion, the people that we've spoken to very much have said, no, it's changing. It is changing right before our eyes. We have a lot of work to do, but the but the process has started. Um, and so that's very exciting to hear. Yeah, we just got to make sure we don't like get fatigued by exactly. it and um, for sure and go back to old ways. And exactly. we know the definition of fatigue right now. Pandemic <laughs> <laughs> fatigue is no joke. Holy moly. Or real. Oh my God. Linda, that is, you have, I mean, you've inspired us so much. And I particularly just that last bit, just hearing about how you specifically asked for a BIPOC woman to be in that position and that they agreed to it. And like you said, it might be a big, a deeper dive than you were planning, but there are people out there who are capable and who can do these jobs. And if we just, if we stop sort of just going with the status quo or what's easy, we can find them. And, and that is how change happens. That is how change happens. So thank you. Thank you for your part in that. Thank you for joining us today. This was was awesome. Again, after, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm so glad that we got to have you here. So thank you. Linda. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Right too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Mama's Talking Loud. Special shout outs to Rachel Spencer Hewitt for our fabulous graphic, Kristen Anderson Lopez, Bobby Lopez, and Justin Ward Weber for our awesome theme song. Our producers, Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and of course, the Broadway Podcast Network for bringing us to you. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.